Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, your friendly neighborhood science radio show. Sit back and relax as we insidiously slip science snippets into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature assassin bugs and lactating cockroaches. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. Once believed to be the exclusive domain of humans, tool use has been, in recent years, identified in an increasing number of non-human species, including octopi, elephants, and birds. Now, photographic evidence has been provided for what has been reported to be the first documented evidence of tool use in fish. Professional diver Scott Gardner was exploring the Great Barrier Reef when he happened to observe a black spot tusk fish Corridon scoenlii, smashing clams against a rock. The presence of other crushed shells suggests that this behaviour is quite common. The research has been published in the journal Coral Reefs, with co-author Colin Brown, a behavioural ecologist from Macquarie University, saying that it is apparent that this particular individual does this on a regular basis, judging by the broken shells scattered around the anvil. However, not everybody is convinced, and tool use remains a subject of controversy, in part due to semantics. Several different definitions for tool use in animals have been put forward, and we want to use a definition established by Benjamin Beck in 1980, which, among other things, requires the animal to carry or hold the object, then these fish would not be considered to be using tools. And it is this definition that primatologists Elisabetta Weiselberge adheres to. She writes, The form of tool use described in tuskfish is cognitively little demanding and present in a variety of species. Often it has been labelled as proto-tool use because the object used to open the shell is still fixated to the sea bottom and not portable as stone tools used to crack open nuts by chimpanzees or capuchin monkeys are. This debate also calls to question whether or not archerfish, who have been documented to shoot water jets at their prey, is also an example of tool use. Brown remains adamant that what he photographed was an example of tool use and suggests that the definition be changed from one that is potentially anthropologically biased. Scientists from Seoul National University have reported a case of non-parental infanticide in the black-billed magpie pica pica. Avian infanticide performed by non-parents has been less documented and is comparatively less understood than parental infanticide. In fact, in the prior study, the researchers found a rare sex disadvantage, whereby, for example, male chicks had a greater likelihood of dying when there were more female chicks present and vice versa and have hypothesized that this is due to the parents inducing mortality to reach a particular brood sex ratio. 
In their most recent finding, the scientists observed in the video footage of a magpie nest an adult magpie killing the nestlings, the adult having none of the markers the researchers used to identify the parents. In other species, non-parental infanticide has been attributed to competition. In some cases, this is competition over females, and males often perform infanticide to induce estrus in the females so they can sire more offspring. Since in this species the parents form monogamous bonds, it is believed that in this case the cause was competition over nest sites. A hypothesis supported by the population being particularly dense and the parents of the killed chicks eventually leaving the site soon afterwards. The findings have been published in the Journal of Mythology. A recent study has suggested that dinosaurs were more active than previously believed and added more fuel to the debate as to whether they, like modern-day birds and mammals, were capable of maintaining their body temperature internally. Blood is supplied via holes in the femur known as a nutrient foramen, and there exists a trend where the size of the nutrient foramen is related to the maximum activity rate a person is capable of achieving during aerobic exercise. Professor Roger Seymour from the University of Adelaide has utilised this principle when analysing the femur of dinosaurs. My aim was to see whether we could use fossil bones of dinosaurs to indicate the level of bone metabolic rate and possibly extend it to the whole body's metabolic rate, he says. One of the big controversies among paleobiologists is whether dinosaurs were cold-blooded and sluggish or warm-blooded and active. They initially analysed and compared the metabolic rate and the size of nutrient foramen in living reptiles and mammals. After finding that the correlation between hole size and activity rate also existed in non-human species, they then measured the nutrient foramen of 10 species of dinosaurs from 5 taxonomic groups. Surprisingly, when differences in size were taken into account, the nutrient foramen were relatively larger in dinosaurs than those found in mammals, suggesting that dinosaurs had a higher activity rate. The study has been published in the journal Proceedings of Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. Diffusion is recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and over the internet on diffusionradio.com. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Parental care is something we tend to associate with human nature. However, it turns out that some creepy crawly insects also have a nurturing side. Tonight, Dr. James Gilbert from the University of Sydney joins us in the studio with Dr. Popple. Dr. James Gilbert, thank you for joining us. Hi. 
So, insects are pretty amazing creatures, but it's hard to imagine them as caring. Is parental care in insects a common phenomenon? I mean, you're right. Um, um, you don't normally think of insects as caring at all. And I, I think insects get a bit of a bad press these days because, you know, they tend to be featured in, you know, horror movies. And uh, whenever I tell people I work on insects, they tend to come back with, oh, I, I hate them. Actually, insects have some of the most diverse parental care behaviours in the animal kingdom. It's, um, it's quite amazing. Um, they, they go all the way from just... Uh, standing over their eggs all the way to properly you know provisioning their offspring with with uh, uh, you know over the course of their development all the way up to adulthood with with, with uh, food sometimes with liquid food um, there are even insects that make milk for their offspring which I think is quite amazing so uh, what kind of insects uh, exhibit forms of parental care um, well as I just said like uh, there there are sometimes there are whole families of insects like uh, um, uh, and even whole orders of insects, like earwigs, for example. You don't think of earwigs as um, doing much. It, like every single species of earwig cares for its eggs in quite a, and 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 sometimes offspring up to adulthood in quite a intensive kind of way. The parent will um, dig a little hole and lay lay her eggs inside it, and she'll spend all the time that the offspring take to develop from egg all the way to adult, um, tending them and cleaning them, um, and <clears throat> and that sometimes. Um, the, uh, she, she only has one brood of offspring sometimes, which means that she expends all of her energy after laying those eggs in, in caring for them, which is amazing. Um, and then other things like uh, cockroaches, as I said, some insects make milk for their offspring. Uh, there's one species of cockroach that, that lactates with the offspring, kind of feeding off secretions from, from the mother, uh, which is a little bit grim when people actually when you actually think about it, but it is quite amazing that it actually happens. Um, and then there are other, um, you know, um, uh, a whole load of species of, of uh, insects that are, belong to the fact the uh, the order of the true bugs uh, will care for their eggs. The female will stand guard over her eggs, sometimes and her offspring. And then when they hatch out, sometimes she'll play an active part in herding them around, like telling them where all the where the good patches of food are. Where a predator comes along, she'll bash her head against the plant, and that will that will send a vibrational signal to her offspring to uh, to, to re-aggregate and to get away from the predator, which is really cool. So that's uh, pretty amazing. So you mentioned lactating cockroaches. How much milk can a cockroach produce? <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't actually work on the lactating oh, right. cockroaches, but that we know it's a very nutrient-rich secretion. And what, what happens is that it's not, uh, it's not like a teat, like a, a, a mammal would. Um, what happens is she uh, secretes a kind of a milky secretion from between. You know, you know insects have these, um, uh, like, um, uh, hard plates on their abdomen that kind of interlock in the spaces in between the plates there's a secretion of a kind of a material which the which the offspring will kind of feed off as they as they develop and they'll be clustering underneath her wings um, so you'll be able to find the offspring by by lifting up her wings it's pretty cool i kind of see this as my um my uh, my business model if the science gig doesn't work out in a, in a post-apocalyptic world i'll be farming cockroaches for milk and that's you know obviously no n nothing's going to survive a post-apocalyptic holocaust so where are you going to get your milk from you're going to come to me there's a point <laughs> and if, if the cicadas manage to survive we can get our water from them because their pee is purer than rainwater absolutely well, I've, I've heard that as well yes but you'd be waiting a long time for a glass of milk or a glass of water. <laughs> Insects 
aren't really the most self-aware of creatures and nor are they highly intelligent. So why do these insects care for the young? Oh, that's a really good question. Like we, we've got, we've actually got remarkably uh, um, little knowledge about the broad kinds of environment that select for different kinds of parental care. There's a, there's a, a big old dude, E.O. Wilson, who, who started, kicked off the debate about what kinds of things might potentially um, uh, cause that this behaviour to evolve um, and he identified four main kinds of environment um, and they are harsh environments like um, there's a, a kind of a beetle which digs a burrow which like god knows why it actually wants to live in this place but it lives in the intertidal zone when the when the tide comes in on the beach and so the parent digs a burrow but it's constantly kind of washed up by the sea um, and so the parent has to work like the devil to keep it open in order for the offspring to be oxygenated. Um, and, and so it, it sounds like a complete mugsy. Like, why doesn't she move up the beach, for goodness sake? Um, well, like, well, as you said, they're insects. They're not desperately self-aware. And if, she, you know, if, if they can carve out a little ecological niche to live where they have, then, then they can pass on their genes and, and their offspring will keep doing it if the parents successfully manage to raise a, a, a brood so that's what that's uh, one kind of environment another one is where the environment is particularly stable and structured like where there's lots and lots of ecological niches for things to coexist in um, and and that can mean that you're you're quite safe in your niche um, and, and a parent can um, can uh, raise a, a nice big brood there's uh, environments where there's lots of predators around that need defending against or maybe parasites around that you might want to guard against and the last one is um, it's where the uh, the insects utilize uh, a resource which is particularly uh, hard to find and when they find it they've got to uh, defend it against other members of the same species so an example of that would be like burying beetles and I don't know if you've heard of burying beetles where they'll wander around on the forest floor until they find a mouse a dead mouse and then they will uh, be like bury the carcass in, in the ground and, and kind of mash it up and chew it up into a ball of meat and then lay eggs on that um, and in fact um, in fact, people people tend to go Ugh, when I tell them about that, but um, but actually, uh, they uh, we, we keep some of these in the lab, and it's the the grimmest is when they've not done that. The mouse goes off, the mouse goes mouldy, that kind of thing. But when they're actually actively raising a brood on it, they keep it they keep it perfectly nice and fresh, almost as if the meat was actually in a fridge. So um, so they actually do a very good job of stopping it going grim. Um, and so they managed to raise a, a brood on there, but but their main problem is not predators, and it's it's not um, parasites. It's in fact other burying beetles that want to steal their mouse. So so that's another case where defence of your brood would evolve. So yeah, there are basically four kinds of environments that would select for parental care. So rearing those beetles in the lab, I'm curious, does that mean you had a stock of mice on hand as well? Yeah, we get them kind of uh, uh, off uh, so that all the laboratory mice don't go to waste. We get we, we get to kind of buy them in bulk from from old labs. <laughs> that's, that's actually a bit of a relief coming from someone who had to sacrifice many, many mice over the course of her research studies. Oh, great. OK, yeah. They, they don't all go to waste. <laughs> When the experiment fails, as it undoubtedly always does. Yes, I think I'm not. I'm not sure we use. I'm not sure we're allowed to use like genetically mutated mice in, in uh, to give the beetles, but we get oh. the uh, we get the normal ones, the wild type ones. Shame. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, I would have thought that assassin bugs would not make ideal parents, and yet the focus of your PhD research was on a particular group of assassin bugs that actively protect their eggs. How exactly do they do that? You're absolutely right. Yeah, assassin bugs, they, they, they sound, and indeed they are, most of the time, amusingly evil. They, they've got like this kind of, um, they've got a giant kind of stabby proboscis on the front of their head, and they use it like, well, they, they, are, they are true bugs, as I was talking about before, and, and the unifying feature of true bugs is that they have a stabby proboscis, but most true bugs use it to stab plants with as you were talking like cicadas for example and, and suck the juices out of a plant but the assassin bugs have chosen to stab other other insects and, and uh, one particular family of assassin bugs has decided to stab human beings and, and, and suck suck the juices out of human beings and they can actually they, they take stuff out of us and, and at the same time they put stuff into us as well because they can transfer some horrible diseases to, they call them kissing, kissing bugs because you can wake up a, after a night's sleep with lots of them clustered on your lip which is quite grim. I don't um, think this is going to help endear people to insects somehow. <laughs> yes, the uh, uh, amusing evilness of assassin bugs is a, is a bit of a selling point. But uh, the ones I chose to study were uh, harmless. They lived in Africa rather than South America and quite, quite small. They did give me a nasty nip a couple of times. But um, uh, what's really, really interesting about them is that there's one genus, which is a, a kind of a quite, na- rather than a whole family, it's a very narrow grouping. Um, and in that genus, there are several thousand species most of whom do nothing with their eggs they just lay little batches and, and, and leave them um, but then intriguingly in Uganda where I did my field work there's um, there's one species where the female uh, for whatever reason guards the eggs um, and um, three species where the male does it and the the you know there's this kind of fatherhood thing which is incredibly rare in nature like and and insects are one of the best places to study that because it's one of the most often that it's evolved even though it's it's again the rarest form of care in insects at least it happens it happens in in some fish and and in some insects but basically hardly um hardly uh, anywhere else maybe some frogs as well so yeah what's really interesting about this one group of insects is that there's female care and exclusive male care just in the same genus and coexisting in the same place as well which is um something which made it really fascinating for a scientist who's interested in explaining all this diversity um so i went out there and did some field studies on the assassin bugs to look at some various costs and benefits of that behavior in in both the male caring and the female caring species Right. Well, you mentioned earlier that the it was the female cockroaches that produced the milk, and I thought that was interesting as well, that um, why would insects develop a maternal streak, so to speak, as opposed to a paternal one? Because it could really go either way, considering um, how little effort I think it takes on either the father and the mother's part to create a progeny. So... Why do we see a, a maternal streak in insects? That's a really, really good question. I'm really glad you asked it, actually, because it goes to the heart of what I do. Um, and, and reproductive biology is basically based on, you know, answering the question. Like, the people are, like, we would see all these magazines interested in the differences between men and women, and, and, and human beings are just obsessed with differences between men and women. And that's basically what I'm here to try and explain, um, using animals as models because they're much better as little robots to explain the rules that that they live by um and uh, one unifying principle across the whole of sexually reproducing organisms is that um the basic difference between males and females is that females have large expensive gametes gametes being sperm and eggs and the distinguishing feature of eggs is that they're huge and for a cell 
and expensive to produce and you can only make a limited number of them. Uh, whereas for a man, or a male of any species, has uh, effectively unlimited numbers of incredibly cheap tiny, tiny sperm. And what that means is that that, has, that basically sets the stage for the whole of reproductive biology because it means that uh, for a male, uh, you can always get more babies by having sex with more women. And the, the upshot of that for women is not, not the same at all. A woman can't have more babies by having sex with more men. The only way she can have more babies is by physically producing more babies. And that entails getting better resources, better sites to lay eggs, better places to bring up their offspring, etc. So all else being equal, a male of any sexual species is likely to want to be off shagging females. Um, whereas the female is likely to be concerned not with the quantity of the mates that she gets, but the quality of them. So she's looking for the best rather than the most. Um, and what that means is that if you're going to make the decision, am I going to restrict, am I going to tie myself down doing parental care or not? That means that for the male, there's, a, there's an abundantly obvious reason why you'd not want to do that, because you could be off looking for mates and that thereby increasing your numbers of offspring for the female that reason is not there and so she's much more likely to do the care if if care is required and another reason as there's there's several reasons why males would not want to do the care if females tend to sleep around in this particular species males could potentially end up guarding offspring that are not theirs and that's a ver another very good reason why you'd not want to tie yourself down to one clutch of offspring if you're not sure that they're yours. So if the, if the species is even slightly promiscuous, then males are much more likely to desert offspring. There are plenty of reasons why, why males would not ever want to care for offspring. So it's not so much a maternal instinct as an anti-paternal instinct. And that's why, again, that's why those assassin bugs are so interesting, because why on earth would you ever want to tie yourself down caring for offspring when you could be off searching for mates. So why do those male assassin bugs care? <laughs> right, okay, so this is, um, uh, this is what we were doing. Um, so what we did was we measured several costs and benefits of parental care. We did, we did the standard um, test that you do to ascertain that they're effective in caring for offspring. Uh, so what they do is they stand over their eggs and they basically they repel any um, parasites that come along. Um, and so we picked off males from off, from eggs, and we saw how many of them, how, how many of the resulting offspring, uh, were were uh, parasitized. And obviously, you know, like more of them got, uh, more of them got uh, nobbled by parasites than when the male was present. So clearly, care has a benefit. But then we went in and measured the costs, and we found that males actually tend to die more more often when they're caring. So that's a cost, an extra cost of parental care. So even more reason not to do it. But then we found something really interesting when we looked at, we looked at something called the energetic cost of caring, which is how much weight you tend to gain or lose while you're standing caring for eggs in the field. And we typically expect individuals to lose weight because these things are active predators and need to be looking for prey. Um, but in fact, we found that while you know, fe the female caring species, the females lose significant amounts of weight while they're caring for eggs, which means you know, they're, they're, they can't be feeding and so uh, they, they lose weight. But the males actually gained weight in the field, which is really weird. Um, and we found that they were being a bit devious and they were actually, while they were caring for some offspring, they actually kind of sneakily ate a few. 
Um, <laughs> so they were they were cannibalizing their own eggs, um, which is which is a, a really interesting kind of behaviour called filial cannibalism, which which happens um, actually happens more than you'd uh, more than you'd like to expect in the animal kingdom. Uh, fish sometimes eat their entire broods. Um, if it turns out that it's not going to be worth caring for them, they'll just eat them. Which is, you know, like that—that that kind of gives the lie to the fact that this is some kind of caring, sharing behaviour. It's all—it's all percentages, really. We also looked at what happens to the numbers of mates that the males get when they're on their eggs, and actually that dramatically increases. And what happens is the females are—we uh, we measured the density of the population, and found that males tend to bump into actually, you know, a, a lot, uh, bump into a significant number of females while they're just standing there. So loads of females just come along. And what's crucial in this species is that males can guard several broods from many females at the same time. So it's not like they're tied down to one female's offspring. Um, and, um, and that means that they meet loads and loads and loads of females. And the females are also quite available because they can remate quite readily after, after having laid eggs. Um, so males are capitalising on that advantage. And, uh, and the last thing is that females actually prefer to lay eggs with males that have got eggs. So, so it's like the eggs are a signal to other females to say, look, you know, I'm, I'm a good father, come and lay <laughs> eggs with me. And that is such a strong effect that we found that males would actually fight each other for possession of eggs that weren't even theirs. So they would actually kick another male off his eggs and start guarding them as if they were their own in order to attract... I don't know if you've ever read that book About a Boy by Nick Hornby, about a guy who kind of you know befriends a small boy and then co-opts him like uses him as a tool to get women because the women think oh he's a nice parent well this is exactly the same effect the women were coming along the females were coming along and laying eggs in the brood of a male who's already got eggs because it it seems to signal that he's a good father an attractive mate and, and yeah therefore it's potentially like three, attractive three men and a baby right that's, <laughs> that's exactly, yeah, exactly what they did i don't know if the about a boy comparison will change people's perspective of assassin bugs but it <laughs> might in change their perspective of hugh grant <laughs> thank you very much for speaking us speaking to us this evening no problem so we discussed cockroach milk cicada urine and assassin bugs which frankly make me way more terrified about insects than i was to begin with um, but that was Dr. James Gilbert talking about parental care in insects. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Send us an email at diffusion at 2ser.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2ser.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings, and science stories. You can subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website at www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Julianne Popple. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. You can join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>